Morning, Glory, and evening, Grace, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. I'll keep you posted on the school shooting in Oregon if any breaking news occurs. However, uh, this is the last hour of the radio week, and that means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. And many of you always say you look forward to this with a lot of anticipation throughout the West, where roads are clogged with storm-weary travelers and the, and the power is out in many places and using your battery-operated radios, probably this week more than others. And it's a great week because it's a week that's going to fill in a lot of gaps in my knowledge because on April 15, 1865, the great Abraham Lincoln was shot and killed and the country thrown into an absolute era of chaos in the middle or at the end of a war and at the beginning of a post-war era that very few people knew about. And this Hillsdale Dialogue, I'm joined by Dr. Larry Arn, president of the college and a young professor at Hillsdale, Adam Carrington. Professor Carrington is, in fact, finishing his first semester at the college, and he is an expert in Reconstruction. Professor Carrington, welcome to the program. How did the first semester go? Well, glad to be here, and it's gone very well. It always helps when you have great students and colleagues. So I, any uh, faults for, of the semester was perfectly my own. But you're sitting there next to the, to the Lord High of the, of the campus, and I would consider him a, you know, a great burden to have to carry around in my back. And so that's, a, that's great for you to come in and do that. But now you have to walk very gently through this hour of the radio with him there. If he gets anything wrong, will you correct him? He has a split infinitive in his notes. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. I'll, I'll wait till tenure, and then I'll, I'll just go wild. Okay. <laughs> All right, let's begin with what happens in sort of the immediate aftermath of the assassination. Andrew Johnson, the vice president, is not really, and I'll, I'll throw this to you, Larry, and then come back to Professor Carrington. Johnson is not really in the mold of Lincoln at all. No, he, he more or less tried to do what Lincoln, what he thought Lincoln would try to do, and uh, and they ran over him. They came within one vote of impeaching him and removing him from office. And that is to say, his own party, the Republican Party, which had a very good election in 1866, uh, then they had the votes to do what they wanted to. They had a veto-proof majority. And he wanted, uh, you know, it's it, it, these words, you, we have to define what these words mean, but he wanted a moderate reconstruction and the newly elected Republican Congress were dominated by people who wanted a more vigorous Reconstruction. And Professor Carrington, in the notes you sent me, you talk about two Reconstructions, which was very helpful. The first, the Andrew Re- Johnson Reconstruction, which lasts just 1865 to 1866, and then the near decade of radical Republican Reconstruction. I'm curious, though, the extent of the devastation, not merely the political rending that it occurred, but the physical rending in the country. How bad was it? Well, the South, it was unbelievably devastating. Um, You have a destruction of, one, the labor system with the demise of slavery. You have Union armies, which, uh, you know, I know you're Love for Ohio. Uh, Ohio generals uh, tended to ravage the South between Sherman, Grant, and Sheridan. And the e- economy, the uh, spirit, much of it is obliterated in the South. Now, to be honest, the North suffers, of course, tremendous casualties, but really comes out economically doing pretty well as far as uh, uh, money, supplies, uh War, in some ways, was lucrative there, but in the South, it was great, great devastation. Did famine and disease stock the land? I know we see the pictures of Andersonville and the terrible atrocities there because they just didn't have any food, but after the the fighting stopped, was there hunger and disease everywhere? 
in the South, uh, at least for the first two years, there was pretty widespread. In fact, there was a large amount of relief collections taken up in the North to actually subsidize not just the freed slaves, but also even uh, poor whites in the South who were destitute at that point. Now, things turned around fairly quickly, at least for the plantation owners, but at least for the first two years, it, it was pretty bleak. There is also at this moment, and I teach this every year in con law, a, a huge break with the past in the form of the 13th, 14th, and 15th Amendments to the Constitution, probably the most significant amendments that we have had. Some could argue women's suffrage, perhaps, or, or others, but those are natural progressions of where uh, natural rights would go. But Larry Arn, those three amendments really do upend what the framers had intended. They do so for good reasons, but they, they do change things. Well, it's a, it's a controversy whether they upended or completed what the framers were doing. Uh, because on one level, all they did was say that, you know, the purposes of the Declaration of Independence are to apply to everyone as regards state actions. And uh, and so that that would be a completion of the Declaration of Independence, as Abraham Lincoln so often said. Except they came after Marbury versus Madison, where their interpretation would be given to a court that could read much into their ambiguous phrasing. Yeah, and and uh, that's right. And and you know the the Fourteenth Amendment was not written by the founders of the United States. A congressman named Bingham was the chief agent, and. Um, uh, Maybe it wasn't so well written, but it's for sure that it can be read in a way to require things that the South was not ready to accept. And it's worth stating what seems to me the central problem of Reconstruction. And it's put by Abraham Lincoln in 1854. Uh, he says in the Peoria speech, a universal feeling, whether will or, uh, well or ill-founded, cannot be safely disregarded. And so these people in the South, the, 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 the slaves, had been slaves. And now they're to be equal citizens. And many people don't want that. And so you're, you're in a system now. You've got the problem, and it's just a principal problem. What if a free people in control of their government wish by large majority to do a bad thing? Because then you're, you're, you're either going to let them or you're going to place the government in a position to force them. Right. But we know from the, from the uh, geometry, or the Euclidean logic of James Madison, that a government strong enough to do that is strong enough to do evil itself. And, and so that problem is very deep. And Professor Carrington, uh, for the benefit, we have some fast and smart people who love these hours every week, and then we have some slow and lumbering people, and they are Steelers fans. But let us focus for a moment on the 13th, the 14th, and 15th Amendment. Would you summarize for the audience what they hope to accomplish, what they say they're going to do? Sure. The, the 13th Amendment, which is ratified in 1865 and is the center of the Spielberg-Lincoln movie, is pretty simple. It says that uh, slavery and all forms of involuntary servitude are banned. What then happens, though, is the question becomes, is merely banning the existence of the institution of slavery enough, especially given what uh, Dr. Arne was saying about the uh, tendencies of certain parts of the country to still be antagonistic toward the freed slaves. And what then comes is the 14th Amendment. And the 14th Amendment has 
three main clauses in its first section that become important in Reconstruction and two of which are very important still today. The first is the fact that states are not allowed to abridge the privileges or immunities of United States citizens. Then the two big ones that we still know today are that they cannot, states again cannot deprive persons of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. And then finally also, uh, states must uh, protect, give equal protection of the laws to uh, all of its citizens and, the and fi- all persons. And the yeah. 15th is the right to vote, and, and we'll come back to that. But I, I wanted to note, uh, at least in the jurisprudence of Clarence Thomas and in other places, the Privileges or Immunities Clause is making a comeback. But what happened to it was disfigured almost immediately by the Supreme Court of the United States. It absolutely was. The very first time the 14th Amendment comes up before the court is an 1873 case known as the Slaughterhouse Cases that had to do with certain monopolies for slaughtering in, in Louisiana. And, you know, I won't get too much into the, the nitty-gritty of that, but what they end up doing is asking the question, well, what are the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States? And the majority uh, defines them very narrowly, basically says... Well, there are privileges or immunities of United States citizens, and there's privileges or immunities of state citizens. And oh, by the way, almost all of your fundamental rights, really all of your fundamental rights, are privileges or immunities of state citizens and therefore are not covered by the amendment and are only left to uh, the states to defend. And uh, there's a, a justice in dissent in Slaughterhouse, Justice Stephen Field, who was a Lincoln appointee, who I've happened to do some, some work on. And he comes back and says something similar to what Dr. Arn said. He says, that's foolish. Uh, why did we pass it if that was the case? No, what's really happening is, and he says this directly, why did we pass the 14th Amendment? It was to make the principles of the Declaration of Independent, Independence applicable to the states, where the states now are federally required to actually protect life, liberty, and property. When we come back from break, I'm going to ask... Not only uh, Dr. Carrington, but Dr. Arndt, why did that, was that allowed to happen? The radical Republicans were in the saddle. Why did they allow the 13th Amendment, in other words, to be gutted? Uh, what would Lincoln have done? I'll be right back. Stay tuned. 21 minutes after the hour, American Hugh Hewitt on this, the hour of Hillsdale, the Hillsdale Dialogue. All of them are available at hugh4hillsdale.com. Schools ought to be the scenes of conversations like this, not like uh, the scenes we saw out of Oregon earlier today. And one of the conversations we're having is what happened after the assassination of Lincoln, that era of so-called reconstruction. As we said in the first segment, Dr. Carrington is an expert in this era. Dr. Arn and I uh, know a little bit about it. And, and in fact, it went awry. It went terribly awry. But what's hard for me to understand is when the court botched this reading in the 14th Amendment, Dr. Carrington, why didn't the radical Republicans rise up and say no? Because if they were generally radical and if they genuinely shared Lincoln's vision, they would have understood that that was a cramped and wrong vision. Judge Justice Field was right. What? Where was the Congress? That's a very good question, and I think part of it has to do with understanding the the dimensions of the Republican Party at the time. That while the radicals were a large proportion of the Republican Party, they were not a significant enough one to constantly uh, be passing new amendments. And when this happened on the courts, they really were not able to uh, uh, push back in the way that they thought. And, and, they, and one thing is the court sort of let this go slowly because 
one thing I think that the Congress thought is, well, we have the due process clause and the equal protection clause. And it wasn't till later, the eight, middle 1870s, early 1880s, that those parts of the 14th Amendment were also severely restrained in how they could protect the life, liberty, or property, particularly of the freed slaves. And at that point, Reconstruction has basically ended, and with the rise of the Democratic South again, it becomes basically impossible to try to legislatively correct those problems. All right. Now, now what's interesting about this is, and Dr. Arndt, as you said a few weeks ago, the Dred Scott case, uh, the most infamous of all Supreme Court cases, basically brought on the war, and Lincoln said that as well, and then the Supreme Court punts away a large part of its meaning. Uh, when did when did the American people resign themselves to this understanding of the court being well, able to they, do such things? Well, it you know they the answer is they never have right. There's still lots of protest about court cases and court cases when they're very controversial they tend to be in where there's a political balance that means that that they can't be undone and uh, the courts are reluctant generally to to overturn. Things like were overturned in the Dred Scott decision. You know, the, I mean, I think the best evidence is John Roberts was very unwilling to do what Tawney did by slim majority and overturn the whole platform of the Republican Party, which is what Tawney did. And Roberts was was unwilling to certainly not eager to overturn Obamacare. Yep. But let me say something about that case because the details of the case highlight the problem. There are those three clauses, privileges and immunities, uh, uh, equal uh, due process and equal protection. There's a scholar, Michael Zuckert, who I studied with, he teaches at Notre Dame now, and he writes that those three, three, three things should be read as addressed to each of the branches of government, and privileges and immunities would be the one that was addressed to the legislature, well, and, and, and equal protection to the executive and due process to the courts. And it sort of took the legislature out of it, but you should think about why, because what that case was about down there was there's a bunch of guys running slaughterhouses just up the river from New Orleans, and the byproducts of the slaughterhouses was getting into the water supply. There was cholera outbreaks. And so Louisiana passed a law. First, first the city of New Orleans passed a law, and these slaughterhouses, all privately owned, said, we're outside the city limits. You can't legislate for us. So they appealed to Louisiana, and Louisiana, Louisiana passed a law that there would be a place south of the river, and if you wanted it south of the town, down the river, and if you wanted to run a slaughterhouse, you had to run it there. And they, and they sued on their property rights under the federal constitution. Right. So this wasn't a case about slavery and civil rights for blacks. This was a case about property rights. and. Right. The power of locality to protect the health and safety and welfare of the people. And, and so they, they say two things in the majority opinions in that case. One is they say this is about black and white. This is not about a thing like this. It can't be used for this. And they might just sort of have said, look, states have a police power. They can legislate under that, and this doesn't interfere with that. They could have but been modest. But they, they went further, modest. right? Yes. They went too far, in my opinion. But 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 the case is significant because, remember, it touches on this deep problem, a problem that Lincoln was very well aware of and spoke eloquently about, and that is how are you going to make a free people when by huge majority they think a thing 
to do something they don't that they want. And the problem in every form of government is if is when the sovereign works injustice, as was happening here. And that's when it's hardest to fix. And yeah. you you can abandon popular rule, and then the danger is the rulers will work injustice in their own interest. And Dr. Carrington, it is also at this time that the Supreme Court is acting imprudently, that that perhaps Grant is acting, all of the Republicans are acting imprudently because they don't send the best governors to the South, do they? No, they, they, they certainly don't. And there was plenty of confusion there from Johnson to Grant, where when they have provisional governors, uh, the those governors, especially early on, had a choice. Were they going to try to establish a viable Republican Party in the South? Well, that really would have required either bringing over a lot of ex-Confederates or making appeals to the freed slaves as voters. And what they ended up more trying to do was the latter in the early uh, – or, or I'm, I'm sorry, the former in, in the early part of Reconstruction, meaning appealing to ex-Confederates. Well, that really did not work and never worked. And then later on, when that didn't work, they came down much harsher and established military districts in the South, uh, refused to seat their congressmen, and created a lot of resentment without even building some sort of goodwill or, or constituency, partly based off also the problems that Dr. Arnes articulated. And people were making money hand over fist, weren't they? Yes. In fact, I'll admit I have an old relative that uh, was a Civil War veteran, and he was uh, appealing at one point for union pensions in Ohio and then a few years later in Alabama. So maybe he was one of them. I've been trying to figure that out. But yeah, there was lots of um, attempts to invest in the South and some of it was good natured. Some of it was an attempt to say, we need to get rid of this plantation system that uh, uh, reasserts in many ways the vestiges and badges of slavery, even if the, the form isn't there anymore. But then there was also a lot of graft, a lot of we will take advantage of a region in a, in, in a pretty rough situation. The right famous now. term carpetbagger, correct? It, mm -hmm. Exactly. What, exactly. That, what does that mean? Again, we have Steelers fans. <laughs> well, uh, it, it originates in, in the idea, well, what it, who it referred to were those from the north who rushed to the south to try to take positions of authority, positions of finance to basically uh, rule and lord over the South now that the South has uh, been vanquished. And, and it happens after almost every modern revolution as well. If you look at in the aftermath of the Iraq collapse and the aftermath of Afghanistan, graft follows in the wake of war as surely as sunshine comes out after a storm. I'll be right back with Dr. Arn, Dr. Carrington. The Hillsdale Hour on Reconstruction continues. Stay tuned. 34 minutes after the hour, America. I normally play classical music during the Hillsdale Dialogue, all of which are available at HughForHillsdale.com. But Joan Baez's famous uh, ode to the defeated South I thought was appropriate. Dr. Arn, the danger of being led by genius is that when the genius leaves the stage, there aren't any second acts. Uh, you spoke favorably of Grant before. But the, it was sort of a political collapse and a calamitous one for a period of time in the aftermath of the Civil War, and that most natural of human urges, revenge, was in the saddle. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it, 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 you know, my opinion is it would have been better if Lincoln had lived because he could have reasoned and appealed. But against that, you can also say 
you know, he reasoned and appealed before the Civil War and we got the war. And there were these terrible abuses uh, of, in Reconstruction by the federal authorities, profit-taking and, and unaccountable government. But that was matched, you know, because like the, many of the Civil War leaders had excellent records seeking peace and union and civil rights after the war. But Nathan Bedford Forrest, a really great cavalry commander, formed the Ku Klux Klan. Exactly. And so, you know, you got all that going on, right? And so you've got abuses on both sides. It's a it's a very bad situation for a long time. This is, yeah. this is a broader question, but through all those thousands of years we've been studying, has any civil war ever been followed by other than this? I mean, Sparta and Athens all the way through the Russian Revolution. Isn't it always this way? Well, civil wars can are in many, are the nastiest wars uh, because – Sometimes the person who's closest to you by kin, blood, can, be your, can become the bitterest enemy. Uh, and civil wars are also very deep because they're very clarifying. They're normally fought over what it means that we are a nation, what principles hold us together, what do we think justice is in a, in a way that sometimes isn't sort of exposed all the way down to the bone the way they are in maybe foreign conflicts. And so what happens to these these vast millions of slaves who are suddenly set free but also have no means of taking care of themselves? Well, they're given, you know, there's freedmen bureaus around and there were abuses in those too, but they did a lot of good too. They gave land to many of them and they gave them a mule and uh, and they let them set up on their own. But, of course, that went different ways in different places because they got a they got neighbors, and they got to sell stuff, and they got to buy stuff. And what if people won't cooperate? And you know, it's uh, the 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 systems of of uh, oppression of of the freed slaves survived, you know, well into the 20th century. Of course, the 1964 Civil Rights Act was a bit was a you know a very important thing and changed a lot since then. But but. You know, my own view of all that is that the reason that that the changes happened after the 1964 Civil Rights Act is that most people thought they were right. Yes, of course. And and that's exactly right. And that wasn't true, uh, you know, in the South and other places, too. And, you know, the the you know, the Reconstruction, the military force part of Reconstruction Ends with the 1876 election, is yeah, that right, the, Adam? Yeah, the disputed. And and uh, and there was a it was a very close election. It was thrown to the House, and they worked a deal. And Hayes got in, although he'd lost the popular vote, in exchange for an end to the military reconstruction. And what you get after that is Jim Crow laws. Sure, and up until that time, I think it had blacks elected in the South, so that, for example, Senator Tim Scott of South Carolina is now the first African-American since Reconstruction, that's how the phrase goes, who has represented South Carolina. And and immediately, almost, I think, Professor Carrington, the hammer came down on the newly freed slaves. It really did. And and are you talking post uh, the fall of Reconstruction? Yes. Uh, It took a little bit of time to really settle in, but... Yes, especially when the Supreme Court agreed to uphold uh, – well, uphold two things. One, uphold segregation as being separate but equal in the infamous words of Plessy v. Ferguson. But even before that, to say that 
the only way it will enforce the 14th Amendment is to say that the states are actively discriminating, if they are the ones passing the discrimination. Now, what you ended up having was not only lots of individual discrimination, but equally written laws that were an unbelievably unequally applied. I'll give you a statistic that actually precedes uh, uh, some of this, but it, it continued later. 500 murder um, uh, indictments of whites against blacks in Texas in 1865, zero convictions. Ah, that sums it up. We'll be right back. Our final segment on Reconstruction. We return to the Hugh Hewitt Show on this, the week of the Hilltail Dialogue. Stay tuned. 44 minutes after the hour, America, it's Hugh Hewitt. And I am here to tell you that uh, you might not think much about Reconstruction. Uh, as I have been talking about Reconstruction, that period in American history following the Civil War with Dr. Larry on, president of Hillsdale College, and Dr. Adam Carrington, uh, who is teaching at Hillsdale College now. But you ought to because uh, it, it's so uh, profoundly distorting of our history to this day because not only did the 14th Amendment go badly awry in the slaughterhouse cases, that eventually led to Plessy v. Ferguson, as Dr. Carrington just said, which eventually led to the 1964 Civil Rights Act being premised on the Interstate Commerce Clause power, Dr. Arne, which eventually led to Obamacare being premised on the Interstate Commerce Clause and the taxing power. That, that's, that one decision disfigured the entire course of of American constitutional law in ways that we still live with. Well, that, that, that and another, you know, there was the Civil Rights uh, Acts of, what, 1870-something that was struck down in the Civil Rights Cases of 1875. Yes. And that, by the way, uh, opened the way for Jim Crow because the, there the question was uh, some, some African-American people, freed slaves, and their descendants maybe, sued a bunch of railroads and hoteliers and people who owned, who owned uh, private property that was for public use, and they wouldn't admit blacks. And so the, the Supreme Court held in that case, a very important case in 1875, that the 14th Amendment didn't have anything to say about private action. And there's a dissent in that case by another great justice, John Marshall Harlan, who makes this argument, and this argument has always seemed to me golden, really good, effectively that if you open your doors to the public, you got to let the public in. And uh, and he made the point in the course of that case that a lot of these railroads are running on government land and government subsidized things. And so, uh, and you know, by the way, some of the railroads had been agitating to get rid of the blacks-only carriages, but the government was behind it. And so that that's right. Jim Crow got its basis laid in the arguments of the slaughterhouse cases and the civil rights cases, and uh, and then also in the hearts of you know very many people. And so it took a long time. I'm very and, curious, uh, Dr. Carrington. This is your specialty, and I can't wait to read this book on Stephen Field, who's I didn't realize was a Lincoln appointee. I've been teaching the Descent for years, but my my curiosity is, is there, is there a good book on Reconstruction? Did anyone ever capture the, the whole of, the, of the, the range of emotions and conflicts in a book that stands out on the shelf? I think the most complete work, and it's a work of history, I think more work can be done, especially from the angle of politics and American political thought. But historically, uh, Eric Foner's book, 
on reconstruction and he's got a shorter version and a longer version and I think those as far as if you want to get the basic arguments the basic details that is an exhaustive and almost exhausting because of the length work as far as trying to get uh, get at least the ideas under un, under your belt. And when did that come out? I'm un, I'm unfamiliar with it. So. That came out in the late 1980s. Okay, so there's been much since then. And Dr. Arn, I'm curious if you think there's going to be a renewal of interest in this because we're back into the into the period of racial tension in the United States. These things you think they go away and then they're back center stage again. You think we elect our first black president and we will be past this and we're not. Well, the point of information, wasn't Stephen Field also one of the dissenters in the Dred Scott decision? He was not in the Dred, a dissenter in the Dred Scott decision, but I will say, and this is to his great chagrin, he was in the majority in Plessy v. Ferguson. Whoa. Uh, oh, that's too bad. That's yeah. too bad. But the point is, if you read John Marshall Harlan's dissent in this case and Field's dissent in the Slaughterhouse cases, then you see the way through. And this this means that your, your question to you about contemporary times, it means that the tragedy of the American political system is that we are not often able fully to live up to our creed. And what is our creed except color, as regards race, except colorblind law? Yep. And and we're in a fight for that today, uh, as much as before. Sh- sh- you know, you sh- for sure. A person's race should not be taken into account in any legal way or in uh, before the law in all respects. Neither and to people, award benefits or inflict penalties ever. And that seems to me the American idea, and that idea is hotly contested by many people today as it has been in American history. And, and, and because of the great depredations of slavery and because of the, the great awful evils of, of Jim Crow era— People are sympathetic to the idea of reparations and doing just, but you can't ever get back from that. And I'm, I'm curious, Dr. Carrington, the 40 Acres and a Mule, the Freedmen Bureau, it, was there in during the Reconstruction era any sense that a debt was owed to the slave because they had been a slave? Certainly, and this was part of the debate between, say, Andrew Johnson and the radicals. Andrew Johnson actually vetoed the bill creating the Freedmen's Bureau, and it was passed over his objections. And he was basically saying, no, this will create, this is an overreach by the federal government. It'll create dependency. And what the radicals said, and, you know, there was some sense uh, of this, at least in this situation, is these persons who have actually been in slavery, we do need to create some conditions for freedom, uh, some conditions for them to have a life, liberty, and property of their own. Uh, and so here we are 120 years later or, or longer, 150 years later, and we're not done with this argument, Larry Arn. Last minute of the Hillsdale Dialogue, I don't know, 150 years hence, we will be. Well, Lincoln said uh, always to be striven for, always to be struggled over, never to be wholly attained. The challenge of America is to what Martin Luther King said, live out the true meaning of its creed, and that's never going to be done my own view is that this is not a particularly good time for the attempt of that. We're not doing a very good job, in my opinion, right now. But the answer is to try to do better. Well said. And uh, Dr. Carrington, thank you so much. I look forward. When's that book coming out on Stephen Field? 
<laughs> it's actually in the works right now. Looking forward to it. Thank you for joining us on this Hillsdale Dialogue. And to you, Dr. Larry Arn, we'll be back next week and talk about the awful era of progressivism. Don't go anywhere, America. I'll be back to wrap up today's Hugh Hewitt Show.